several months ago when Jeff talked to me and asked if I would be willing to share some Sunday in April, I said, sure. And then last week when Jeff looked at Romans 12.10 to discover what a healthy church community looks like, I thought it fit together rather well, and the title of his sermon last week was Devoted to Love and Honor. And we didn't plan or coordinate this, but I think that sermon, that lesson, built right into what I'm hoping to talk about today, and I don't take that as a coincidence. I think his message last week connects well and is not an accident that these work together. When it's part of your paying professional job to go to congregations and share, sometimes it's hard to know how to do that when you're where you worship yourself most Sundays. And I want to acknowledge that today. That's why I'm dressed the way I'm dressed. Normally, it's the one day of the week that I don't have to dress up quite as much. But uh, when Hudson knew that I was going to be speaking today, he said I had to wear a tie. So, but I, but I am here today wearing my hat as Director of Communications and Church Relations for Landis Communities. For those of you who aren't familiar, uh, we're an organization that offers a number of comforting live-at-home places and feel-at-home communities uh, throughout Lancaster County, and we've had long connections with this congregation, and we're grateful for the ways that East Petersburg Mennonite has been connected primarily through Landis Homes, but increasingly across all of the organization. But I'm not going to be talking much about Landis communities today. I'm actually wanting to talk about something that I have been thinking about increasingly over the last seven-plus years that I've been in this role, and hopefully it will be meaningful to you no matter which age range you find yourself in, and we will be talking more about the bridge that you see in this picture down the road. Let me set the table with some statistics. For the first time in modern history, we have six generations that are impacting the church at the same time. You can see them listed here, the builders, the silent generation, the boomers, Generation X, millennials, and Generation Z. Don't get too caught up in the exact years. For example, according to these categories, I am a Gen Xer. But when I look at what I like, what I expect, And what I connect best with, I'm actually more of a boomer. So those are guidelines, not hard and fast years. Also, if you don't fit in with some of the characteristics that I talk about from some of these group, don't worry. These are not rules, they're generality. This is a little bit small, so I will read it. Some of these come uh, from Edward Hammett's book, Reaching People Under 30 While Keeping People Over 60. These are some of the feelings that these generations have about church and about the structures. The builders among us had a life of service sacrifice. They established and built structures and buildings. The silent generation, they value the space, the consistency, the professionals leading the worship. Boomers, they're committed to serving, but not necessarily to church membership. They follow their passions to serve where they want to serve and feel comfortable, not where the church may want them to be. Generation X sometimes sees the church as abandoning abandoning them, as hypocritical, more about what the church is against rather than what it is for. 
Millennials all too often see the church as not worthy of investing in. They give directly to those in need. They use online sources for their faith development. And then with Generation Z still so young, it's hard to know where they would be at in that. There were some surveys done about what do people feel when they sit in a church. And the overall feeling among some of the builders was, how did we get here? And we've been working hard. We deserve a rest. The silent generation is feeling pinched. They're feeling pinched between the builder generation, the folks who started many of the buildings and the structures, and the boomers who are much larger number. They feel pinched between those two groups. Boomers are saying, we want to live a life worthy of our calling, but we're going to do that individually. We're going to do it as we feel called to do. And as before I said, Generation X is skeptical. They're searching for community. They're seeking authenticity. And millennials are confused. And they're also asking, how did we get to this place? And they're seeking out new forms of worship and structure. What does the reality of six generations have to do specifically with how congregations function? There are a few ways that this works in the church, particularly around how society looks at aging. One way is that aging is something that we fight against. We don't want to be reminded of it. Elders can be made to feel useless, to be a burden, or maybe even cast off and avoided except for birthdays and maybe Christmas morning. Another view is that age is beautiful, that age demands respect, that age demands dignity, and that the elderly are sort of the giants of the forest, wise and full of experience. And this seems to be what the Bible is about. So going back to the categories from earlier, here is our situation in the United States right now. If you add the builders, the silent, and the baby boomers together, you get more than 105 million people who are aged 53 and above right now in the United States. And here is why that matters to society as a whole, to organizations like I work for, Landis Communities, and I think to the church. It's the caregiver support ratio. Now, I'm going to point out this here with the thing. We're right about here on the curve, if you can see that, okay? We know that the value of the services family members give in caring for their family members is estimated to be about $375 billion a year worth of care that is provided free by family members to their aging family members. That's twice as much as is actually spent on home care and nursing care. One survey said that 29% of the population provide care for an aging family member a year, and they spend an average of 20 hours a week doing that. But the reality is there are few of us, fewer of us, to do that work. Because of the bubble of the boomers aging, there are fewer people able to help more people who are aging and need it. 78% of adults living at home as they age are dependent on family and friends for their caregivers. 
And how are we going to live into that reality when our families are smaller in number and we're more geographically spaced out? That's just a few statistics, and then I wanted to spend some time looking at how caregiving is talked about in the scriptures. The first is the story of Ruth. After Naomi's sons and husband die in Moab, she releases her daughters-in-law to go back to their families. But Ruth, the Bible says, clings to Naomi and refuses to leave her. Her decision to go with Naomi was a great sacrifice. Rather than go home and remarry and gain some security, Ruth leaves her homeland and goes to Israel as a widow, which is the lowest member of that society. It was an act of great courage on her part, as well as a loving sacrifice to care for the needs of Naomi, while her own future was anything but secure. The other, and the photo is hard to see, it is a painting of the widow of Nain, and how the loss of a caregiver would have impacted her. Jesus was traveling around Galilee with his disciples, teaching and working miracles. This is found in Luke chapter 6, verses 10 and following. And this was a woman who lived in a village about nine miles from Nazareth, and she was a widow, and she had only one son, a young man, and he had recently died. As she and many of her friends were taking the son out of the city to bury him, Christ saw her and had compassion and said, Weep not. He touched the funeral litter, and the men holding it stood still. And Christ then said, Young man, I say to thee, arise. And the woman's son arose from the dead and was delivered to his mother. And after the miracle happened, people were afraid and declared, That great prophet has come, and they spread the news of Jesus throughout the region. What Jesus was doing there was recognizing that this woman, if her only son died, she was going to have a very hard time being taken care of, because in that society, it was your children's responsibility to care for their family members, and she would have no one. And so Jesus wanted to make sure that she had someone to care for her. Today, I want to look at several scriptures, both from the Old Testament and the New Testament, that lead us into thinking about how we are to be looking at those who are aging and those who are younger. We'll start by looking in the Old Testament, and much of what I am talking about today came from Jack Wellman, who's a Church of the Brethren pastor in Kansas. First is Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 16, and this one is certainly one that we would be familiar with. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord God commanded you, that your days may be long and it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. So God thought that this was so important that it was placed first in the what we call the horizontal commandments, right? First we have the vertical commandments, the commandments that relate to your relationship with God. But the very first commandment that has to do with how we work with other people is to honor your father and mother. Could be that God was thinking that if children don't honor their parents then the remaining commandments will likely also not make much sense to them. In Isaiah chapter 46, it says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, 
all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb even to your old age. I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and will bear. I will carry and will save. God is showing clearly in this scripture that God cares for all, even in their old age. Unlike many today who see old age as something to be pushed to the side. Here's one from Proverbs. Listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she is old. You know, there were many times when I was younger who I, when I wasn't sure my mother and my father had wisdom. I was pretty sure that I knew more than they did. But this is a reminder again that the importance of listening to the father who gave you life and not despising your mother when she is old. There are some New Testament examples as well. Mark chapter 7, verses 9 to 13. (coughs) And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your mother and your father, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. This might be the sternest rebuke that Jesus ever gave the Pharisees. Because he is telling the Pharisees that they have neglected to provide for their parents and thus broken the fifth commandment. So what they were doing was they were claiming to have set aside all of this money for God so that they would look holy, but were not using that very same money to care for their parents, and then their parents had nothing to live on. They're making an excuse, allowing them to neglect their parents. In John chapter 19, 25 to 27, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Jesus is so considerate of his mother that even while he's on the cross, Being crucified, he wants to make sure that his mother is taken care of. And so he places the responsibility for caring for his mother to the Apostle John. John obeyed Jesus' command, and from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. That's a pretty amazing example of caring for someone. Then two from 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 5.4. But a widow that has children or grandchildren, let them first learn how to show godliness to their own household and to make some return for their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. And then 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That might hit a little bit close to home. And we're not just talking about, I don't think, biological families here. Certainly that is important. But many of us don't live near our biologic families. I think this can be also looking at, particularly in the New Testament, 
as what is that covenanted community that we are a part of and how are we taking care of each other? Paul is basically basically calling those who didn't provide for their own family worse than unbelievers. Even that Paul had to write these instructions to Timothy said that there must have been some folks in the early church who weren't even caring for their own family members. So what does that mean for us today in the church, in this time where we're just scratching the surface? Remember that curve that I show you? We're just starting to come down that curve where there's a large aging group who, on average, have smaller families and who are not as geographically tightly knit as many of us may have grown up with. What does this mean for a church as a whole, and what does it mean for this congregation? This is where I get back to my bridge story. When I was trying to come up with an example for this, I was trying to think, what is it an example that shows of all these different generations coming together and how they might fit together? Some of you know I grew up in the far upper peninsula of Michigan, literally right on the border with Canada. In fact, today they're not getting some cold rain, they're getting a foot of snow or more. This may be hard to see, but the dark blue is the uh, canals and the rivers and the locks that separate the United States on the bottom of that map from Canada on the top of that map. And the, the bright red line is the international train bridge between the United States and Canada. Now, when I was a kid, we'd go to town, and my dad was a pastor of a small Mennonite church and also a full-time accountant. My mom was at home with us four kids. And so when we needed to go to town, we would, had one car. The whole family would go to town because it was about 20 miles to the nearest grocery store. We would go to town, and we would be there basically for the whole day, right? You did everything possible. You went to the bank. You went to the post office. You went to the car dealer. You went to everything that you could do. So often we had a chance to roam around, and we would often go down to the locks to watch the boats go through and to watch the bridge go up and down to allow the train to go across. This is one part, and Jeff, could you turn the lights down just a bit to see if we can get the picture to show a little better? (coughs) This is a vertical lift span bridge built in 1960. As you can see, it needs to raise up to allow the huge freighters to go underneath it. For a sense of scale, the top of this boat is well over 100 feet above the water. So it remains up unless there's a train. Then the bridge is lowered into position, and just that span is almost 400 feet across that canal. So that's the first bridge that you come to as you're trying to get from the United States into Canada. Next is the bridge that I showed at the start. This is a very old picture taken right before or right after it was built in 1913. So we're talking about a bridge that's over 100 years old. And Tim, I know we talked about this. You know what kind of bridge that is. It's called a a bascule drawbridge. And they're descended from the drawbridges that would have been in front of castles in Europe. And the heavy weight that's put here is enough that it does not take much energy at all to bring those spans down together. So that's the second bridge that you cross if you're going into Canada. 
Here you can see the bridge in the open position, and the first bridge that we talked about is behind it. And there's what it looks like when it's down, and you can again see the huge cement counterweights that it takes. Then you go across nine regular railroad bridges. Each one of these bridges is about 238 feet. And they were built right after the end of the American Civil War. So these bridges are also way more than 100 years old. Then you come to this bridge. This was built in 1895. And this is what's called a through-truss swing span. It sits in the middle of the canal. And when the train is going to come... Someone goes up into that little white house and turns on the motors, and the motors swing the bridge out, and it crosses the river. So here's the challenge to the church and to East Petersburg. How do we act like this bridge and move each part in different ways to line up to create a straight train track? That was something that was always interesting to me as a kid. They didn't build six bridges that were all the same. Each of those bridges did something different. One went up and down, one came from the side, one turned, some were solid. But when you got done and all of them came together, you see a straight train track. Each of our generations move, think, and feel differently. And I noticed that these train track designers didn't expect every bridge to act the same way. But they are designed to link together seamlessly. And I think that's instructive to us as a congregation and to a wider church. We aren't all expected to act the same way. We come from different generations. We've had different experiences. But how can we link together? How can we work at creating a similar track on which the train, in this metaphor, the church, can run through all of the age groups? I'd like to challenge you to think about several things. On the back of the bulletin, if you want to, there are some fill-in-the-blanks, and you can follow along with that. The first is a challenge that applies to everyone. I think we all need to be willing to be more generationally literate. That means we need to be willing, willing to recognize what each generation values and some of the good reasons behind it. I learned this the hard way when I was a child. I would go to western Colorado to visit my grandparents. I loved it. We would go and visit farmers to get milk. We'd hike up to ghost towns. We'd go to the graves of Western legends like Doc Holliday. But there was one thing I dreaded when I went to my grandparents, and that was that I knew she would make us go over next to the Pizza Hut and climb up in the apricot trees and get all the extra squishy ones that were too ripe and that were kind of gross. I hate that smell. Even to this day, apricot nectar just takes me over the edge. It was embarrassing to me as a 12, 13-year-old kid to have to be out there picking up these half-rotten fruits and putting them in a basket and bringing them back to my grandmother. 
There was a grocery store right down the street that had perfect apricots. Why were we doing this? I complained to my parents, and I said, why does Grandma want all of these rotten apricots? My dad then, for one of the first times in my memory, told me about how hard his mother had had things in the Dust Bowl years of eastern Colorado. On the left, you see a picture from eastern Colorado. While that is not my grandmother's house, this is from the same area where my grandmother lived. Her name was Verna Enns Ginrich. She was born in 1910 as the child of a first-generation immigrant from what is now Ukraine. She knew firsthand the results of what they called the Dirty Thirties in that part of Colorado, Nebraska, Oklahoma, Texas, and the Dakotas. In the Great Plains, times were really, really tough. They learned to make something out of just about everything. And those half-rotten apricots that I thought were a waste were something she could turn into apricot nectar that was nutritious and it was no cost. And that was something that she had carried with her. Once I understood that this was part of her makeup, I was able to do that task a little bit more cheerfully. I understood her context. I had become a little bit more generationally literate. So that's my first challenge, is become more generationally literate. The second is we need to be able to honor each generation's contributions and gifts. I would point out here in this congregation, there are several of the folks who have experienced more of life than I have, let's say it that way, who chose to serve their country by working in mental hospitals and other places, often at great cost to their budding careers and with financial setbacks rather than choosing to fight and kill. We should be honoring that choice and we should be listening to their stories. They will not be with us forever. Another way, we need to be asking questions. And this goes to everyone. Be willing to ask someone from another generation, why do you do that? You know, I didn't ask my grandmother, why do you want me to go get those apricots? I went to my dad. It would have been much better if I had gone to my grandmother and just said, Grandma, why do we have to go pick these half-rotten apricots? So I think it would be good if we could learn to ask questions and recognize that asking questions doesn't mean that we will get an answer necessarily that we understand, but at least that act of asking questions will help. Now this one I'm aiming specifically at the folks who are aging here. You need to be willing to ask for help. Many of us in the congregation would be happy to give assistance, but we don't know what you need. And I can't stress this enough. It is not a sign of weakness to ask for help. As Jeff said last week, we're a part of a covenanted community. We're called to help each other. We can help, but only if we know. And I wanted to tell a story. It's not about this congregation, so don't try to figure out who it is. But I was speaking in another congregation, and they are also a congregation that participates with the Love, Inc. program. 
And they had a person from that congregation, the pastor told me this, that a person from their congregation had called Love, Inc. asking for help. And what they said was, please don't send anybody from their own church. They wanted help, they needed help, but they didn't want anybody from their own church to be knowing that they needed that help. And I had to think, how often do we do that? When we need help, we don't look to the people around us. We don't look to the generations that, are, that, that might be able to help us that are covenanted into part of this community. We look outside for those sources of help. Another challenge that I would give to you is break out of the mold of your generation. And that doesn't matter which generation you're a part of. Try some things to break out of the mold of your generation. Attend, if you haven't ever, a hymn sing. If you're under 40, I think you might experience the presence of God in some new and surprising ways in a hymn sing. If you're over 50, and that includes me, try attending a modern worship music concert. The same might be true. You may find God in some new and surprising ways in that. There's a band, a local band from around this area called August Burns Red. And one of their biggest fans, and these are young kids from the Lidditz area, one of their biggest fans is a 73-year-old guy from Wisconsin who goes to all of their concerts. He's breaking out of what his generation has defined him to be and said, this is what I want. To, I find something of value in this music. Yeah. The contributions of each generation is in in essence, what I was saying. This may lead us into some places and experience that stretch us. Joseph Ria is a director of ministries in a church in Indianapolis, and he gives three things that we need to do as we look to connect across the age groups and be the church together. One, we need to be willing to push through discomfort. Cultivating friendships across the generations is going to lead us into uncomfortable situations. There's going to be jokes that fall flat because one person's experiences don't make sense to the other person. We might have to work hard to find those connecting points. We might find ourselves with opinions that differ. That can be work. And it's not necessarily comfortable, but that work can pay off. He also says, I must be willing to speak and listen charitably. Each generation has its snide jokes about the other generations, its eye rolls, its hot button issues. Cultivating intergenerational friendships and church relationships require us to set those aside. To assume the best of people, whether they're much older or younger than ourselves, and to explore our differences with grace. He says, This isn't a squishy tolerance. It may find out that we have the freedom to disagree, but we must be willing to show patience for one another on the way toward that decision. And then he also says, We must elevate Jesus above all. 
C.S. Lewis says that friendship begins when one person says to another, What? You too? That is, when we find out with delight that we hold common ground with someone. The most current example I have of that is a program at Landis Homes called the Grand Pals Program. And some of you who are residents there may participate in that. This is where they bring fourth and fifth graders from Hinkletown Mennonite School to Landis Homes, and they're paired up with a resident at Landis Homes. And I am quite certain that at the start, both the resident at Landis Homes and the student think, what do I have in common with this person? And yet, through the activities that they do, they might find that whether they're 82 or 10, they have a love for baseball. Or if they're 82 or 10, they might like to draw. Or if they're 82 or 10, they might like music. There are all of these communication points and connection points that can happen. But it does take energy and time to do that. Friendship is, is in a sense, a commonality, finding commonality. And the further we are that we are removed from someone, financially, socially, generationally, the connection points seem to diminish. But I don't want to end on a down note. It doesn't have to be that way. We as a family have been blessed in this congregation by those from across the age groups who have been special to our family since our children don't have aunts, uncles, cousins nearby and only one grandparent nearby. I value that very deeply. And to be honest, that's probably one of the reasons that we have remained here is that you have become those cousins and aunts and uncles to our children. Let's work to keep bringing that train track idea into focus, recognizing that each of these age groups is going to move in a bit of a different way, but they are going to come together. It is going to take some work, but it is important. Let's pray. God, You know our number of days. You know how long we are going to be here. And we ask that as we travel this train track and we experience the different ways that the generations move, that you would give us the ability to step out of our comfort zones, to experience things from another's point of view, and to think carefully about what it means to be a church that cares for each other through all stages of life. And we ask this in your name. Amen.